Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad you could join us today. Have you heard of wine moms? All you have to do is look on social media to see memes, photos, and videos of women drinking wine to take the edge off their stress. You can even buy wine glasses and T-shirts with sassy sayings about women and wine. Well, some experts say this wine mom culture actually represents a bigger issue with women and alcohol. Alcohol use and misuse among women is on the rise. For years, men were more likely than women to consume alcohol and binge drink, but that gender gap is closing. And women who drink have a higher risk than men do for certain health problems, including liver disease, heart disease, and cancer. I talk about health and wellness on Wednesdays, and this hour we're listening back to a conversation I had a few months ago with a researcher who studies sex differences in alcohol use. I talk with a drug and alcohol counselor who specializes in women's addiction. I spoke with Jasmine Belter, a licensed drug and alcohol counselor and the clinical director at Welcome Manor Family Services in Garden City, Minnesota. That's just south of Mankato. Welcome Manor is a residential drug and alcohol addiction treatment center for women. I also talked to Mackenzie Peltier, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. She researches sex differences in alcohol use disorders. She has a PhD in clinical psychology, and she joined us from New Haven, Connecticut. I started our conversation by asking Professor Peltier to tell us more about the increase in women drinking. This is an observation that we've seen come out of the last few decades of research. We see that women over the past approximately 10 years have um, are at an 84% increased likelihood of having an alcohol use disorder, whereas men are only at a 35% increased likelihood. And when we talk about binge drinking and alcohol use over that same period, we actually see, as you mentioned in your introduction, that those gender differences have almost completely gone away. And I think the other thing that's really interesting is when we look at adolescent substance use, so children from 12 to 17 years old, we see no difference in the levels of drinking between boys and girls. And this really reflects an interesting shift in our culture. I'm, I'm sitting with those numbers for a minute. So again, you said the, in the last 10 years, an 84% increase in the likelihood um, for, for women of drinking too much compared to a 35% jump in men. Yes. So what do we know about this? What has changed? Like, uh, what do we know about what is maybe contributing to, to women drinking more, a lot more? Absolutely. So we're still trying to answer that question. But in general, what we see data emerging from the World Health Organization is showing us that the when we look at gender roles traditionally, and when I talk about gender or sex, I also just want to be mindful that when I mention sex, I'm talking about the NIH definition mm-hmm. of sex, um, which is the biological differences between males and females uh, versus gender, which is the uh, societal determination of gender roles, which may vary between time periods or mm-hmm. cultures. Um, but when we look at data coming from the World Health Organization, we see that increased workforce representation, increased access to contraceptions, um, and essentially moving away from those traditional gender norms may uh, account for at least some of that increase. Um, Interestingly, we also know that historically men have had more access to alcohol use than their female counterparts. And when we control for access, 
we no longer see sex differences. Mm -hmm. So it's likely also um, that there is increased access and permissibility to drink among women. Um, when you walk into a liquor store or a grocery store, you are bombarded with new marketing campaigns to entice women. Um, there are glittery, glittery and sparkly wine bottles. There are lots of pink advertisements really appealing to some of those stereotypical gender um, roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the marketing, it is speaking to us. It's encouraging us to buy and and to consume. And talk more about how society even talks about women and alcohol. Um, You know, over the past several years, we've seen this explosion of of wine mom memes online, as well as branded clothing and other other products. Uh, There's a whole mommy wine culture hashtag that's popular on Instagram. And you can buy lots of products, even wine glasses labeled mommy juice or, you know, shirts (laughs) with sayings about women and wine. I mean, it's a whole thing. So, Professor Peltier, what does that say to you? I think that that really um, speaks to one of the emerging theories that we know about women in alcohol use and women in substance use in general, is women are more likely than men to drink or to use substances to cope with negative affect, to cope with a stressful day, to cope with feeling sad or depressed or overwhelmed. And I think really when we're talking about mommy wine culture, um, that that's really what we're getting at, that it has become socially more permissible it has become less stigmatized mm-hmm. for women to turn to alcohol to relieve their stress, to find relaxation. Um, I was uh, recently doing some Instagram searching and saw that um, Snooki from the Jersey Shore has her <laughs> own uh, w- wine label out called Mama Wine, um, which essentially speaks directly to this mommy wine culture that we see that wine is now an accepted part of our culture and a way for women to relieve their stress, even though it may not be the most adaptive way to do so. And in many ways, an expectation that it's part of whatever activity that you are, you know, taking part in. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I think you can see um, on social media as well as just in social events in communities um, that women gathering around alcohol is much more common than it ever has been. And I think it's also important to note that this is not just among younger women. Um, recently, um, my group here at Yale has started looking at alcohol use across the lifespan. We also see very interesting increases in alcohol use among older women or postmenopausal women. Um, and I think that that's really articulated. I don't know if you were able to see a few years ago, Jane Fonda uh, came out with a movie called The Book Club, which essentially her older uh, a group of older women who were friends would gather around once a month and drink very large glasses of wine and talk about 50 shades of gray. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that is um, the other part of this increased utilization of wine to relax and to socialize. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just part of mommy wine culture, although that is a big part, um, but we do see it across the lifespan. Uh, Jasmine, any thoughts uh, that you have? The the social norms, it's just more acceptable for Mm -hmm. uh, women to drink and and maybe even be drunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And I think that what we see is what starts out as like social experimentation can quickly turn into like alcohol use dependence Mm -hmm. without realizing it's there. So the physical symptoms of dependence um, manifest before females realize it's happening. So Jasmine, what are some signs that drinking has become a problem? What should people watch out for? Well, I think in our experience, what we hear a lot of times is maybe if somebody is in that stage where they 
don't quite know if they're dependent or not. Um, a lot of times we'll hear people say, I can quit anytime. Mm-hmm. However, that's it's not as simple as just saying you quit it. Um, it becomes a, like an urge that you need to do it. So sort of like your your inhibitions, your inner dialogue becomes less loud, if you will, if you can just use, if you can just have some drinks. And even though you've told your family you're not going to because maybe the last time you did, you maybe did something you didn't mean to do, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you are find yourself in that predicament where you're like, well, I've said I can stop, but I really can't, that might be a good first place to start talking about it. And I want to remind our listeners what we're talking about. We're talking about women, wine, and alcohol. How much drinking is too much? And what does it do to our bodies? How has our experience, uh, how is it different from men who drink? Let's take some phone calls as I talk with our two guests. Uh, in St. Paul, we have Laura on the phone. And Laura, what did you want to add to the conversation? Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm coming up on 800 days sober from alcohol. Um, and I've just barely tuned into the conversation. But, uh, you know, my story was I started drinking in my late teens, uh, drank heavily through college along with a lot of my peers. But then when other people were able to moderate, I was not. And it just built and built. And I'm an outdoor recreationist. And drinking is very much, you know, it's like the work hard, play hard culture within that. Um, but it all came to a head. I received a bipolar diagnosis, and about a year after that, I kept drinking, but was hospitalized again, and it was just a hard stop from the hospital. Of You know, I was really putting a lot of risk with my medication. I was really putting a lot of risk with my mental health and stability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the social part of it, I think, has been so huge because it's still interesting now in the past couple of years of going out and I'm grateful for so many places offering NA options. But I think especially in the Twin Cities, there's such a culture of that's the gathering is around alcohol. Right, right. And, and so, it, like, Laura, 800 days alcohol-free, and what's been the difference? How are you doing? Yeah, I mean, so much more stability that I didn't even, I couldn't have even, like, foreseen for myself, um, both mentally, just like within, you know, my work environment, within my home environment. Um, and, you know, I've been white knuckling. <laughs> I have not attended any meetings or anything throughout my sobriety. I work very closely with a therapist and psychiatrist. But the main difference has been it's just like such a weight was lifted. Mm-hmm. when I turned that corner. So you feel more focused and sounds maybe like you feel happier. happier. Yes, completely. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Laura, in St. Paul. Uh, Jasmine, what do you hear in uh, Laura's story? Uh, uh, that it, I hear a lot of amazingness there. Um, the fact that she is doing therapy to sort of um, get herself to that place where she can start to see that 
she is not the problem. Like she is a person who's living with a disease where she even says there's times when she's still white knuckling it. Yeah. It doesn't just magically disappear that feeling. Um, it, it absolutely sticks with you, you know? So when I think she's the perfect example of connectedness that you need, you need in order to be able to show up in your own life. And that's a lot of times what we see. It's we have the best families that come and, and give us their stories at Wolga Manor, but they haven't been physically and emotionally present in their life. Maybe they've been physically there, but emotionally disconnected. And so when we can see that emotional connection start again, that's truly when people start to heal. So she's doing great. And Professor Peltier, it's my understanding one of the reasons that uh, people in general that that we do drink is often it's to deal with some trauma that we have not addressed. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, obviously, congratulations um, to Laura. That's an amazing accomplish over, accomplishment over two years sober. Mm-hmm. And what we see is in general for women in particular, psychiatric comorbidities are far more likely to be related to alcohol use, um, especially with trauma. We see that PTSD or trauma exposure occurs at much higher rates prior to problematic alcohol use than in male counterparts. Um, and so that's typically in, when you say you're in therapy and working with a psychiatrist, that is great because mm-hmm. that is a really important area to target in treatment for women is to address the underlying or co-current psychiatric symptoms that are going on. The other thing that um, the caller mentioned that I thought was was really interesting is the progression in drinking uh, for women. Um, what we actually know is that uh, alcohol is what we call it takes on a telescoping progression, um, meaning that compared to men, women are more likely to drink maybe later on in life uh, in college, um, but per- the progression from the initiation to presentation to treatment is much, much shorter in women than it is to men. And Professor Peltier, talk to us about what alcohol does to the body and how it affects women's bodies differently than men's. I said in the intro that, you know, it puts us at a higher risk of liver disease and heart disease and cancer. But what do we need to know just about the science of this? Absolutely. Um, so in general, uh, as women, we um, we metabolize alcohol differently. Mm-hmm. We have lower levels of the enzymes that break down alcohol, lower levels of it's called alcohol dehydrogenase. We also have lower total body water than our male counterparts. Um, and because of that, um, we will have higher blood alcohol contents, even mm-hmm. if we're drinking the same amount as um, men. And the part of this that, that gets pretty scary when you think about it is women are at much higher increased health consequences um, compared to men for drinking, even though we drink for a shorter amount of period. And even though in general, we consume less overall quantity of alcohol, we're still at heightened health consequences. Um, So things like uh, increased risk of stroke, cardiovascular events, including heart attacks, lots of different cancers, specifically breast cancer. In breast cancer, we see a dose-dependent risk um, between the amount someone's drinking and the, the potential risk they have for being diagnosed with breast cancer. And the way women's bodies process alcohol, it changes as we get older as well. It, it definitely does. And the other thing that uh, we are just starting to really look at is the role of hormones in how we experience alcohol 
um, as well as how it may impact those health consequences. So things like estrogen or progesterone, which fluctuate across our lives, um, can really impact um, our experience with alcohol. All right, I want to come back to, to talking more about that, what happens as we age. But uh, first, I want to take another phone call from a listener as we talk about uh, being a woman and consuming alcohol. Uh, from St. Cloud, Jessica is on the phone. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, learning a lot. How are you? Good. What did you want to tell us uh, about alcohol and, and being a woman? Yes. Okay, well, um, I am 38. And I haven't had any alcohol now in 10 days, which is um, Congratulations. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So I have been thinking about when I really started drinking and when it might have been become a difference for me. And I think uh, soon after my husband and I got married, we were experiencing fertility issues. And I started, you know, having a glass of wine or a drink to just calm my anxiety and, and fears about that. And when you get into situations, I think as a young woman and your friends are able to get pregnant and, and you aren't, it, it causes some certain stressors. And so I definitely mm -hmm. used alcohol as a way to just kind of numb some of those feelings that I was having about all of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll say we have two kids now, but um, I think... Some of that just has continued and overflowed into other areas now of life and just anxiety or stress at work. And it's easy to just reach for um, a drink after work. And it's, it had just become kind of a thing. A routine. Um, yeah, a routine. And it seemed fine and normal. But when you realize, well, for me anyway, I guess coming to the realization that it might be making anxiety and depression worse. Um, that was kind of something I've been thinking about for a long time, but, you know, didn't really have the desire to quit. So Jessica, um, what happened 10 days ago when you decided, I'm just not going to drink oh, anymore and see how long I can do this? Well, a couple things. So I um, am in the medical field and I attended a presentation about alcohol use disorder and like the spectrum of that. And that really hit home with me. I'm like, you know, gosh, the speaker said, I bet there's at least half of this audience that has some sort of alcohol use disorder. You might not classify yourself as an alcoholic, but your drinking is such that you're, you're you, you know, using it for some other reason. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there is this um, thread or subreddit on Reddit. It's called Stop Drinking. Mm -hmm. And I, I had just been Googling about ways to stop drinking um, and so I, I read about that, kind of joined that, just been reading people's experiences. And I just said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop today. And um, and I really didn't are. have a, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's Jessica in St. Cloud. Uh, I'd like to hear from both of our guests, uh, Jasmine and Professor Peltier, about this, about how women drink more to cope with stress and anxiety, maybe than men do. And, and what do you hear as you counsel uh, women, Jasmine? The experience of infertility, I think starting right there is the whole idea that you're supposed to just relax and what's going to happen will happen. And so what helps you better with relaxing than having something to drink, you know, so it just plays right into the dependence. And then if you have like uh, inner dialogue that you're a failure, that you can't 
you know, create a child that that's your family's goal. You experience this loss of what your vision of your marriage and having babies is supposed to be, you know. So alcohol can numb that. You know, it doesn't numb it all for the whole time, but it just numbs it temporarily. Um, so I think that that's what I'm hearing there is like now later on you have children you've made it through the fertility process and all of a sudden now you got to the real your whole family yeah. together <laughs> yeah right. yep so mm-hmm. it doesn't just end because you were able to fulfill that family dream of picture of mm-hmm. what you guys look like it becomes the narrative of now you got to hold it all together and so that numbing just that role comes back it it just speaks to the whole you're not really a failure mm-hmm. and, and nobody is a failure it's just the inner narrative we have mm, i love these, these conversations with ourself um the world yes, that's playing yes. uh, i love that you and said that conversations mm-hmm. those conversations are created in childhood you know we don't just wake up feeling that way it is something that comes at us over time so like the alcohol dependence it's ingrained you know, mm-hmm. it's it's in our brains. It's wired in there. So you're trying to, like, get through a lot of rewiring in your brain mm-hmm. for treating yourself. So 10 days is amazing. It is. Uh, so, again, Jessica and St. Cloud, uh, we're proud of you. Uh, Professor uh, Peltier, what can you add to that? Uh, this thought of, of, you know, let me, you know, release some of this anxiety. Um, but, you know, that's part of life. And and and. and whatever label you want to put on it, recognizing that you may be more reliant on what you're drinking than you realize. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting when I talk to uh, patients in my clinical practice, they'll often say, Dr. Peltier, but I'm not drinking too much. But when we really break it down, a standard drink, so when I say a standard drink, I mean about 12 ounces, a can of beer, five ounces of wine, or about one and a half ounces of hard liquor. What we see when we talk about heavy drinking for a woman would be three or more of any of those sizes per day or seven or more of any of those drinks per week. And so as you can see quickly, these the number of drinks you're drinking can add up. It's also important to know if you go to a bar and you order a mixed drink, that typically will have two, maybe three shots of different liquors in it. But it also so has that an, one. But it has an umbrella in it too, and maybe some flowers. It it's really <laughs> it cute. It, Sometimes it's red it, with like sugar. I mean, they make them really pretty, and they taste good. Yeah, absolutely. And then before you know it, as as you're thinking about, and as I'm asking you to reflect on how much you've drank in the week, you're realizing how quickly these numbers add up. Mm-hmm. And how quickly something can snowball into a problem that, that may not seem at, at face value as a problem. Uh, Jasmine, I was surprised by, by some research. Uh, what it has revealed about what happens to women as we enter our mid-40s and 50s when it comes to drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Peltier, we were talking about as we age, our bodies and hormones change. Um, but I read something about that alcoholism becomes um, a physical dependency rather than a psychological dependence than mm-hmm. when we were younger. And have you found that to be true, too, and with women you're working with in their mid-40s and 50s? Yes. Yep. And that itself creates so much shame. Um, So the physical dependency piece, if somebody stops drinking and they start to have withdrawal symptoms and like specifically shakiness, things that would be so uncomfortable, it would take them back to alcohol use. Mm. Um, 
it's not something we talk about a lot. And actually, alcohol dependence with, or I'm sorry, withdrawal from alcohol dependence can be deadly. So if we're not talking about this and women are experiencing this and not getting medical attention, that's just a dangerous combination, you know. Um, I guess when we have people here that are going to come and stay with us at Welcome Manor, we require that they have like zeros in their alcohol, or I'm sorry, zero alcohol in their system, or we have to have them go to a detox detoxification because medically it puts them at such increased risk of um, seizures and potentially death. So, so work with someone if, if mm-hmm. to help you completely uh, stop drinking if you're someone who is truly dependent. There's if a, you are some medical experiencing physical symptoms, yeah. yes, when you stop drinking, such as shakiness, mm. um, if your blood pressure is increasing um, and it's like tremors in your body, um, just things that are quite scary, you mm-hmm. know, because you don't think your body is going to do that. But I didn't know that. As the alcohol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, we don't talk about it. And that's what's so scary about it. And to make those things go away, of course more alcohol will make those things go away. But the physical symptoms are still there. They're just not being allowed to come out if we're still drinking. So Mm -hmm. it's something very much to pay attention to. We've been listening to a conversation I had a few months ago about the rise in alcohol use and misuse among women. My guests were Jasmine Belter, a licensed drug and alcohol counselor and the clinical director at Welcome Manor Family Services in Garden City, Minnesota, just south of Mankato. Welcome Manor is a residential drug and alcohol addiction treatment center for women. I also spoke with Mackenzie Peltier, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. She researches sex differences in alcohol use disorders and has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. And we took your phone calls that day. Here's one of our listeners, Jen from Minneapolis. First of all, thank you for having this very important conversation. I myself am 50 and have almost nine years of sobriety. So I appreciate you are talking about the space between 40 and 50. Um, That certainly looked different for me, my early drinking versus my later drinking around age 40 when I experienced burnout. What I want to talk about today is how women and men behave differently in community and social spaces and settings. And I think the social pressures can look different for women and men. For example, women, and I've witnessed this over years as I'm in events, um, you come into a group of women who are drinking And there are a lot of questions if you are not drinking, you know, the first one, why aren't you drinking? And Mm -hmm. you feel like you have Mm -hmm. to answer to that. Mm -hmm. And it's full explanation. And then, you know, women outside of that will say, did you realize this person wasn't drinking? Do you think they have a problem? So it's this shame and stigma. And you know that women, because we operate differently in community, really care. But it comes out as like um, this, you don't belong or... Mm -hmm you know, you need to participate, you need to drink to be social. Whereas men, I have experienced and witnessed that 
they can come in and, you know, maybe they're not drinking and there's no question. Like it's barely even noticed. Um, mm-hmm. They make it a little, you know, upfront, but it's, it's just not that big of a deal sometimes to men in social spaces. So I just wanted to call out that distinction and see what um, your guest mm-hmm. um, and you had to say about that. Yeah, thank you, Jen in Minneapolis. The social dynamics of this and what can you tell us about, is there research or surveys that address that, uh, Professor Peltier? So I'm not sure about specific research, but I think it speaks to a broader issue of this idea of society believing women can do it all, right? That we are supposed to be able to uh, take on a lot of the roles in the household, taking care of the children. We're supposed to be the best friends, daughters, daughter-in-laws. Um, and, and we're supposed good. to also look good, look good. Absolutely. And we're supposed to also be able to do it while responsibly enjoying two or three glasses of wine with our girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think that 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 caller is really speaking to this idea that we're supposed to do it all. And if you're not meeting those standards that immediately uh, members of society will think something's wrong or there's something wrong with you. Um, and I think it speaks to a lot of the stigma around not not drinking um, the idea that. That is one of the reasons women often will say they will not go and seek help for their uh, alcohol use is because they're afraid of what others in their community are going to think of them, what their family members are going to think of them. Wow. Um, so it's a really Im- important dynamic to observe and for us us to be aware of. Mm. Jasmine, I'm sure you've heard many stories from uh, women that you yeah. have worked with as a counselor. What can you say about this and the, the social dynamics to this? So there, I mean, right off the bat, when we were talking about this, two things came into my mind that are huge part of the stigma is that the problem is your problem. You are the problem. So I think a lot of our women that we serve come in saying, look, I'm, you know, there's a family system here, but I'm the problem in the family system. Um, And then that you're just not enough or strong enough to handle your drinking and manage our lives, you know, and neither of these stigmatizing statements are true. They're so damaging. Um, They just feed a a negative cycle of what women go through. I mean, just to put it bluntly, if you're being told you're the crazy one, uh, that's just not true, you know, um, and no. I'm sure there are many women who um, maybe they want to socialize and they're drinking just to be part of the group or, again, mm-hmm. they don't want that spot. Well, why aren't you drinking? Are you pregnant? Is something wrong? Is, is you know, yeah. is, you know, and so they don't want that spotlight. So it's easier just to do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's easier to give in than to let someone know that you're feeling that way or experiencing those things. Mm-hmm. Let's get to more of these phone calls from listeners in Fairmont. Jackie is on the phone. Good morning, Jackie. Thank you for calling in. And what do you want to tell us? Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm a chaplain or spiritual care provider at um, a couple of uh, smaller hospitals in in greater Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I just wanted to confirm, first of all, that um, our emergency departments are seeing um, many more uh, women coming in um, that are very sick. Um, with um, alcohol poisoning, intoxication, um, and that certainly there's been an increase um, in that number. And like I said, when women are coming in, they're very sick. I also need to give a shout-out to our uh, smaller hospitals for the 
the care that they're able to provide when our women are, are detoxing. Um, that's starting in the emergency department and often uh, carrying up their being admitted because of a lack of, of beds um, in other, in other um, facilities. Um, so a shout out to them. And also um, just the spiritual, spiritual care piece of uh, women who, um, you know, have been drinking um, excessively and for a long time that are so physically sick. Uh, you talked about how eventually we need to drill down to that spiritual piece of uh, women experiencing uh, shame, trauma, lack of self-love, lack of self-care. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could could talk a little bit about that as well. Mm. And thank you for taking my call. And Jackie, before you uh, hang up there, again, you're seeing more women come into the emergency room at hospitals because they've had too much to drink, a, a binge drinking situation? Absolutely. Um, and I mean, they need to be admitted. It's not just mm. been a one time uh, they mm. drank too much. They've been um, they've been drinking too much for a very long time. Um, as your presenters have said, their livers are shutting down. They're mm. seizing. I mean, very serious medical complications when they're entering the emergency department. And Jackie, as a chaplain, a spiritual leader, what do you think about this? What do you think is contributing to this? Well, I, as a spiritual care provider, um, I guess, you know, I'm the one that tries to, to drill down and, and look at, you know, what is what is at the bottom, what's what's mm-hmm. driving um, uh, using alcohol as a, a, a means to cope. Um, but at the other on the other side of it, it's like women are so physically sick that oftentimes in the hospital, um, we're just getting them physically well. And there's oftentimes not a real long time for me to even interact as a spiritual care provider um, with women because we need to get them well and we need to get mm-hmm. them placement. So, But in anyway. general, do you think that there's you see more of a lack of self-love among many women right now? Um, I, I, I think that's part of it. Your, your presenters have talked about just the, the pressure on on women um, to kind of be all and and do all, um, yeah, I, I would say that, yeah, lack of, of self-worth, self-love um, certainly plays a role. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Jackie and Fairmont, who is a chaplain working at smaller hospitals across greater Minnesota. Uh, Professor Peltier, what do you hear in her, you know, statement and her question, too? Absolutely. Um, so I think it does illustrate this really important and under-discussed idea that alcoholism and alcohol use disorder are medical, real serious medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are instances um, when women are overly intoxicated or who are in withdrawal need um, emergent medical care. Um, and I think it also highlights this idea. A lot of the patients I work with at the core of it, underneath it all, it is trying to find their worth, trying to find their place in society, trying to navigate who they are and who they want to be in light of all of the societal standards. Um, and I, I think that caller highlighted that really nicely, that those are very important conversations. Those are conversations that underline a lot of the anxiety and the depression that we see that co-occur in alcohol use in women. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the other thing that it highlights is also the need for specific treatments for women in gender specific or gender recovery based programs. Um, Jasmine, um, we just yeah. heard from a chaplain uh, oh. at a hospital sharing women being brought to the emergency room or coming to the emergency room mm-hmm. because of their uh, struggle with alcohol. And yes. do so, you hear this too? Um, absolutely. Uh, we ex- are experiencing it. We're not even a hospital. So what, mm-hmm. what resonated with me about what she talked about was trying to get to the underlying um, reason why it's happening. And right. as a chaplain in a hospital, that must be sort of like mm-hmm. frustrating. You know that there's so much more mm-hmm. um, that you want to talk to them about. And I think that's where treatment comes into the picture because we literally, we're a co-occurring program, and we start with those inner narratives that have been developed during childhood. So what we're really talking about is the presence of trauma. Mm-hmm. And so if we can treat the person and their trauma, they have better chances at getting back out there to their lives. That amazing pressure that oh, we all have mm-hmm. with this inner narrative and trying to change the narrative to be something that you can live with. Um, so really when people come to treatment and women's specific treatment, um, that's, that is very much needed. I a hundred percent agree. Um, you are starting by talking to those childhood parts of the person and, and trying to find out why they are thinking about themselves the way they do. For and women, a lot of times it's caretaking. Sorry, Angela, are you trying no, to get a question? It's a lot. No, no, I'm just, I want to hear more about what happens at Welcome Manor Family Services for people who are curious. Yeah. So what happens? I go to an in-treatment or a residential facility, mm-hmm. and then what happens? Well, then you are going to be meeting with your counselor and you're going to be meeting with your therapist because both of those pieces are integral to someone's treatment. We don't just stop drinking and it all goes away. It It is not something that happens overnight. You really literally have to talk to the childhood parts that created the self doubt that creates mm-hmm. the self-hatred. You said it yourself, loving yourself. Um, it's like learning that you are good enough, but none of that can happen unless you reframe and restructure that narrative. So that has to start in therapy. Um, it starts with diagnosis. It can be part of medication that people take to help them, you know, to even out the hormones, to lessen the big swings of the hormones and what alcohol has done to hormone levels. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, like we're a program where the average stay is 90 days. So if you can imagine in that time, we get to do what Jackie's talking about. We get to really look at that underlying reason of why the binge drinking is happening or why the dependence is there and how to restructure it, reframe it and, I'm like, make it something manageable that you can Mm -hmm. live with. How to love yourself. We're talking about women and alcohol. Let's uh, take another phone call from a listener in St. Paul. Mary is on the phone. Mary, thank you for waiting. And and what did you want to tell us? 
Hi, um, I just wanted to speak to um, my experience as um, in my late 20s, I hit a a pretty dark spot. I was dealing with um, uh, some some pretty tough emotional things and a a recent rape. And I realized that I was really digging into my alcohol use in a way that was getting to be unsustainable and unhealthy. Um, And I was working with my therapist and I, I made a conscious choice at the time I had access to marijuana products and I made a conscious choice to switch go cold turkey on alcohol. And if I really needed something to release my attention and to feel like I was partaking in an event, I would instead use marijuana products. And I'm curious with, in light of Minnesota's recent um, legalization, there are now uh, THC drinks available at First Avenue in these kind of spaces where typically it would be an alcohol-centered event. And I'm curious to hear if there are anecdotal stories. I've certainly heard from some friends in similar circumstances that they've felt a release, that they can still be a part of something and be able to imbibe in something with friends, but it is not alcohol. It doesn't have those same triggers. It doesn't have those same effects. They're not dealing with that kind of alcoholism and hangovers and sort of constant unwell. Um, And I'm I'm curious uh, from your guests, if there are any research or data that's coming out as these sort of things become more Mm -hmm. available in the negative or the positive for people dealing with alcoholism. And now that there's another option, is -hmm. is that relieving any pressure? Professor Peltier, what would you tell Mary? Yeah, that is a great question, Mary. And to be honest, one that I answer multiple times with patients uh, every day. Hmm. In in general, um, even though marijuana and cannabis products are becoming more uh, prevalent and more accepted throughout society, the research is still out as to whether or not they are viable treatment options. The limited data that we do have do tell us that they actually make it more difficult for us to treat your anxiety, your depression, your PTSD in the long run. The other piece of it that's really important to know is whether you're you know, reaching for a glass of wine or an, a cannabis-based edible, either way, you're looking for an external item, an external source to relieve your anxiety or to relieve your feelings of um, sadness or feeling overwhelmed. And really, as a mental health provider, I would really strongly love um, for everyone to develop the skills they need to be able to soothe themselves um, and not have to reach for substances to cope. Jasmine, anything you would add to, to that? I agree with what she said, because I guess our experience here is that women can still have dependencies and become dependent upon cannabis because a drug is a drug. And if it impacts your life negatively, then that that is something you need to have treatment for. Like, I mean, and I don't mean just like go to treatment. I just mean uh, like Dr. Peltier, learning how to cope and live your life without the substance. In our last minute here, uh, I'd love for you each to give us a couple of words uh, for people who want to have a conversation with someone who they really care about. Uh, if you're worried about someone who you think may be abusing alcohol, what are the words? What do you say to initiate a conversation in a meaningful and loving way that might lead someone to take action? Jasmine? Um, for me, it's about connection and just listening to what the person says. So people aren't going to come to you if they're feeling judged. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you th- if you blame them as being the problem, they're not going to change for you. 
So um, it's that whole accepting people where they're at and talking about it. We all need to talk about it. Mm. And Professor Peltier, we just have 30 seconds here. What would I say to someone that I cared about? I I would really just be genuine in sharing your concerns, um, making sure you do it in a distraction-free environment, making sure cell phones are put away, Mm. and really just working on a plan that's grounded in specific and measurable goals. We've been listening to a conversation I had a few months ago about women and alcohol use. I spoke with Mackenzie Peltier, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. And I also spoke with Jasmine Belter, a licensed drug and alcohol counselor and the clinical director at Welcome Manor Family Services in Garden City, Minnesota. That's just south of Mankato. If you missed part of today's show, remember you can find it on our podcast. Just search for NPR News with Angela Davis wherever you get your podcasts. Be safe, everyone. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.